But that wasn't satisfying to me as a researcher. I was like, okay, if we know both those things, let's get on it, people. Let's get some some answers to help. Let's protect against these vulnerabilities of mind by training the mind. So where are we going really depends on the scientists that you ask. Some may still want to pursue, and many are still pursuing the basic nature of attention. Others are pursuing the vulnerabilities of attention. And I wanted to move toward how can we best strengthen and protect this brain resource. And through the variety of things that I studied in my lab, the thing I came to, which shocked the heck out of me, was mindfulness meditation. So to answer your question very directly, personally, my, where I'm going with it is better solutions that are informed by the world's wisdom traditions and examined and interrogated with modern neuroscience. This afternoon is Dr. Amish Jha. Uh, this is a special one for me because I don't know if I've ever had like a real one-on-one -on -one conversation with a neuroscientist in my life. Uh, that's possible, actually. So, of course, everybody is quoting neuroscience, talking about meditation these days. But we have a real bona fide expert here with us today. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I don't think I've ever had a real one-on-one -on -one conversation with a world-renowned jazz musician. So thank you. Okay. <laughs> who, who, whose day job is as a Buddhist teacher. Right. Exactly. <laughs> not, I'm not sure which is which sometimes. but <laughs> And then as I mentioned, you know, certain jobs, it crosses over like playing with KD. I'm not sure which I am. So, um, so you know, I know many people have spoken to you about these things and coming obviously from the Buddhist side of the equation. <clears throat> and um, Obviously, there's a huge framework for 
neuroscience and and meditation these days. So you, you you know this this is a big big topic. So what would if you could only say one thing about that conjunction, what would it be? About what specific neuroscience and meditation? Why are those two words in the same sentence? Perfect marriage. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Now you got me serious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, let me let but you roll with I that a little e- bit. Yeah. Yeah. Explain, yeah. Let me expand yeah. on on that a bit. You know, in some sense, I get asked often, like, why is it that right now people are turning to meditation? Like, why is it having this heyday in our society? I mean, you literally cannot walk through a you know, a grocery checkout aisle without seeing something on a magazine cover that says something about meditation or mindfulness meditation in particular. Why is that? And what's going on? And I think that why I say perfect marriage in some sense is that we really are at a moment in time where there is this sort of global crisis that we're experiencing, existential, attentional, and people are looking for solutions to regarding what they could do to to deal with these overcoming feelings of of that this particular set of um, moments that we're in. But so I think that there's a need right now for a variety of reasons, global pandemic, uh, 24-7 information-dense, technology-driven, social media-activated world. But it's also the case that there is an entire enterprise that didn't exist in the 1970s when a lot of this work was originally starting to happen. When when, um, Westerners went to uh, the East to learn about a lot of these practices and then came back to sort of talk about them within at least the U.S. context, there was interest in science around these topics. It didn't take off in the way that it has in the mid, uh, you know, basically the after 2010 or so in the US. And I think one of the reasons that that's been able to happen is because we now have the tools of neuroscience that were not available back then. Mm-hmm. For example, functional MRI. So mm-hmm. this is a, uh, a technology that allows us to look at the awake behaving brain without having to interfere with its functioning. And we can ask people to do things like go into the scanner and just rest. Or we can say, meditate, and we can look to see what brain function looks like then. And we can train them over the course of days, weeks, months to engage in specific practices and track to see if there are any brain changes that occur. And the exciting thing is that we see really cool stuff that is ex- it's both expanding with regard to the neuroscience, and of course, it's enlightening in some sense with regard to mm. what these ancient practices are doing to the brain and we can quantify them with objective metrics that we could not before. So I think that's part of the reason I said a perfect marriage. Is that tech portable? Could 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 you um, put it on somebody's head while they're bowling, for example, or uh, no. walking? Out? No, wouldn't that be cool? Well, there are other technologies that you can do that with. So mm-hmm. with functional MRI, it's a giant, giant magnet. We've got sure. one. You know, it's across the hall from my lab in, in the building that I'm in. And um, expensive piece of equipment. It takes <laughs> it costs about five hundred dollars an hour or so for the researchers to use it, just uh-huh. to have access to this equipment. Um, so no, you cannot. It's a giant magnet. You cannot take it around. You can't put, you it on, put it on your iPhone. You cannot put it on your iPhone. No. Okay. Um, you know, to give you a sense of how powerful this magnet is, if you came in with a paperclip into the room with a magnet, 
it would move at the speed of a bullet to the center of the magnet. So a very giant, powerful mm -hmm. magnet that allows us to see these small fluctuations in the amount of hemoglobin that has a magnetic, you know, the heme compound has this iron in it. And it's the movement of that iron that tells us a lot about this sort of oxygenation of the blood and where blood flow goes in the brain that's tied to where neural activity is happening. So it's a very cool uh, technology and it's very, very helpful to both look at structure and function, functioning of the brain. Another technology that we use in my own lab, brainwave recordings have been around for a lot longer. Those are portable. And now we are at the point where people are literally making little EEG headbands oh, yeah. uh, that, you can, that you can wear that connect to a phone with Bluetooth and you can get real-time recordings where people are engaging in activity. Um, or you could just have them come to the lab, put the brainwave cap on and, and have them do various things. So we are able to probe brain function in a way that we could not before. In some sense, with some technologies, very, very easily accessible um, tools. Why does the brain have no nerve endings in it? Why can't you feel your brain? Well, in some sense, it's the culmination of where all nerve endings end or begin, depending on how you want to think about it, right? Okay. So mm -hmm. uh, the brain itself does not have a representation of itself within it. So we have, <laughs> we have, a, we have a body map, right? We literally uh, have a map of the body. Uh, yeah. Um, and Everything from the tips of our heads to the tips of our toes is represented within that body wow. map. And um, we have it both for motor functioning, where we can move various parts of the body. And we also have it for what's called somatosensation, the sensory experience. Within that body ma map, there is nothing regarding the brain. So it's not representing itself. There's nowhere for neurons to represent the brain itself to be. So you can't really be aware of your own brain in a sense. Oh, no, no. That's a, diff that's a different story. Oh, okay. You can. <laughs> what be? I'm talking about is that, for example, if you have a, a pain in your toe, you'll right. feel it because the body map right. of uh, with it, the somatosensory map will experience that activation, and then the toe site within that body map will become activated. Mm. Or, you know, if I scratch my head, there'll be a head site that'll be activated, mm. etc. But the brain itself cannot be activated. So that's sort of a, it's in some sense a more trivial. Um, but can the brain actually understand its own functioning? Yes, it can. And that it takes us into the realm of, of uh, you know, what consciousness is and what metaconsciousness sure. is and what meta-awareness is. But the closest function is probably this function called uh, meta-awareness, which is awareness of the contents and processes at play in our own functioning moment by moment. Yeah. So. Which is um, <clears throat> has an element of a squirrel chasing its own tail, doesn't it? Also, though, can for yeah. sure, yeah. And we don't we don't spontaneously do that all that often. Uh, you know, I guess some people would call it self awareness, uh, for lack of a better term, like that. Uh, you know, like when they talk about sentience, you know, that the 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 being has an awareness of its own existence, isn't that in there? Right. In there I think the only difference between self awareness and meta awareness is the timestamp. You know, there's a lot of terms for this, metacognition, self-awareness, meta-awareness. This all kind of fall into a family where there is this sort of viewing ourselves, right? So if I put my dog in front of a mirror, he just doesn't care. He does not recognize himself. Uh, you know, he's not going <laughs> to. We, if we look at ourselves, like even on the Zoom screen, we're like, oh, yeah, there's me. Look at me. I'm making this funny expression, right, whatever it is. Right. So um, self-awareness in some sense can be my general tendencies, what I know about myself. Sometimes people call that metacognition which is the way I tend to think 
um, like I tend to be a worrier or I tend to be a real optimist mm-hmm. or whatever that is. Meta-awareness is taking that same sort of function, but making it granular and temporally specific. So not do I tend to be an optimist in this moment, what is my mood state? That's meta-awareness. And uh, I'm aware okay. of and I am aware that that is my mood state. So it's truly is that sentient aspect, but it's moment by moment. And you know, probably in the in meditation tradition, they would call that um the abstract witness or the watcher. Right. Or in, in a lot of um, you know, I remember when we pre- when I was presenting my research to his holiness the Dalai Lama, that term, the Sanskrit term samprajanya. Uh-huh. It's like awareness of mind or awareness of right. awareness, that sort of that sort of aspect. Which becomes a bigger deal, like in the beginning of the meditation path. Uh, it's too thick. The consciousness is too coarse in a way, you know, so you might even become aware of the fact that you're even thinking at all, you know, that there are those activities happening. But it, as you know, in more advanced practices, you begin to look at the looker uh, as, and also there's this uh, a feeling of um, actually entering a space of not knowing what it is that is being experienced and, and resting in that not knowing. Now, does science ever rest in not knowing? I think that's all that science is. <laughs> right? I mean, truly, we, yeah. never, we can never even say we prove anything. Uh, all we can do is make our best guesses at disproving. Um, and that it's a, an entirely uh, empirically, experientially derived approach where um, the not knowing is the journey. Do you know who this guy is here? Have you seen this guy before? Uh, maybe. I don't recognize the sword. Tell me who that is. Okay, so that's Manjushri, one of the oh, Bodhisattvas. Manjushri. Yeah, Manjushri. Yeah. Manju in Japanese. And uh, the sword he's holding up is called the Sword of Prajna, which is probably the most closest to scientific inquiry. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a two-edged sword, so the outer edge cuts through the phenomenal perception, but the inner edge cuts through the perceiver. The, the solidity of the perceiver. So it reveals shunyata or emptiness. As there's a feeling of like nowhere to rest. So, and I think it's been an, analogized as maybe like a microscope energy or something that you use to see deeper into something. Prajna is sort of discernment is probably a pretty, I think the best definition for it. So it seems like mm-hmm. that science's job is to discern, wouldn't you say, without bias? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why the, the term I just said before, samprajanya, it's the right. same thing. Yeah. Right. It's that awareness of the awareness, like a looking of the looker yeah. in some sense. So that it's t- completely tied to the same concept. And yeah, 100 percent. I mean, in many ways, I teach a class at the University of Miami called Mindfulness, Attention and the Brain. And, and, and the brain. alongside and the brain. Yeah. Okay. And alongside it's like two parallel tracks. They learn about, um, you know, the research happening within the field of mindfulness research, especially as it relates to attention. But then they also begin a practice journey. And these are kind of paths that will often intersect with each other. And what happens is as the students progress, maybe around maybe what week three or four, we start seeing that they are getting a sense of how flawed a lot of research is Mm. and how, especially as it relates to people studying mindfulness, how if the researcher him or herself themselves is unaware of what the practices do experientially, phenomenologically, their chances of doing a a sufficient job in the way they design the experiment are much less. And and it's a really fun insight to see them gain. Like 
you know, like for example, something like you, you read a paper and it says, yeah, people, they had a 15 minute mindfulness practice that they had to do. And, and people reported that their mind wandered three times and the students just <laughs> laughed. They're like three times, uh, maybe in the first second, my mind wanders yeah. three times. And I just love seeing that they're becoming uh, more and more attuned to their own phenomenological experience of their conscious mind through the practice. And that makes them better able to ask questions and get creative regarding how we're going to study this thing object with objective metrics um, in the lab. So it's a really, it's a really fun journey to see them, but absolutely. I think they're go hand in hand. Is there a word for, or a way to describe non-wandering mind? What is that called? Um, sure. Focused, sustained attention. I mean, but the, there's no question regarding whether, um, there's no question that mind wandering is going to happen a lot. That's mm-hmm. the broader category I would say is spontaneous thought. The mind will just proliferate thoughts. That's its nature. It's going mm-hmm. to uh, generate um, all kinds of things. And what our job is when we're paying attention is to constrain what it does, what that spontaneous, what the how much spontaneity we allow in its functioning. Mm-hmm. And that's what we think of as cognitive control or executive control that we're mm-hmm. tamping down. We're saying, not now, right now, one thing, you know, that's the thing you're paying attention to. And of course, then that, that control waxes and wanes. So sometimes, even though you have every intention of writing that email or finishing that page in the book, you get to the bottom and have no idea what the heck you read. So mm. um, the nature of the mind as both um, dynamic and uh, having a lot of spontaneous things arise and mm-hmm. capable of having control, both are true. The brain is like kind, kind of like a storm, isn't it? There's like an, a, a storming quality, right? Kind of I mean, like, you're a musician. You, you'd appreciate my, I mean, I would call them dad jokes, but since I'm a mom, I'd say a mom joke. I would okay, I yeah. show like a, um, a Hammond organ on the screen and I'll say, what does this have in common with the brain? And it's like, the brain is an electric organ. <laughs> absolutely true i mean the mm. way that neural firing happens is through electric charges kind of proliferating through um various nerve endings so uh that is its nature it's the it's the uh proliferation of neural charge is the accumulation of neural charge so that we now have neurons talking to each other and then sort of a lot uh, having ally- allyships so that they're kind of partnering together to have a stronger reaction and now we're at the point where we don't talk about sort of different brain pieces doing different things. Uh, instead, we talk about brain networks interacting with each other. Are there and, are there other examples of neural style networks in the plant kingdom? Probably. Like, have, um, have you ever been to Hawaii? I have. Have you seen the banyan trees there that are like two oh, acres? Oh, yeah. Well, we have them all over Miami, too. Uh, yeah, but, you know, they can... They uh, can extend, branching and proliferating. Yeah, yeah, there's one that's two acres, and is that's it one amazing. one tree or is it a, a, a community of trees? I use that a lot as a, as a, uh, an analogy for developing good community. Yeah, you know, and 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 it's very hard to tell whether it's one or many at that point. Right. Yeah. So right. the brain is the brain a community or is it one? It's both. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. It's got, um, well, that's what I was trying to say is that if we think of the brain, kind of at the, the fundamental unit of the brain is a neuron, right? A, a, a brain cell. 
um, and that the brain cells functioning is through electric charge proliferating. But to have that particular brain uh, cell even fire, to have the proliferation of the charge, requires it to have input from other brain cells. Mm -hmm. So it never kind of works individually. It's always in relationship to other brain cells. And when when there's a particular group of, of neurons that work together, they form a neural network. And what they do is a network is essentially um, kind of rev together, if you will, you know, sort of like, sort of like a, you might think of it from in musical terms, like it's like an orchestra where like all the strings mm. are going to play together and they're, mm. they're kind of doing the same thing. But of course, each individual uh, uh, musician is doing something, you know, with their own sort of um, twist on it, sure. but they're working together. And then, and then you might have the horn section come in or whatever it is. And it is this sort of dynamic symphony between various networks and our present moment conscious experience is in some sense the winner of the competition between those networks. Mm -hmm. So it's so a, moment it's, by by moment those those are shifting and and um, changing. So it's just a band competition, is what it is. Sure. <laughs> okay. So um, is now following through the the analogy there, um, the orchestra could play without a conductor theoretically, but there is a conductor to synchronize the different activities. Is there the equivalent of that within the brain function? Is there a conductor? That's a, such a great question, right? So of course there's not, there's this notion of like a homunculus, which is a, just a term for little man. Um, and, and <laughs> who, th who thinks words, he's a big man though. Right. right what? So little man yeah. is actually the way we think it's of course entirely gendered, but uh, let's put that to the side for a moment. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but homunculus, we think about the brain's um, motor system and somatosensory system, our, you know, our, our, our experience of touch, et cetera, as organized in a homuncular fashion. So literally, if you, if you go to the part of the brain that represents, let's say, motor functioning, and you map out, you'll see, oh, look at that. It like kind of tracks with our body. But it's a weird looking little guy because uh, where there are more where there are more neurons, that part of the body is actually represented as like larger in this little man. So if you actually look at a picture of a homunculus that represents, for example, somatosensory cortex, um, you know, like certain parts of the backs of the hands will be tiny, but the front of the hand will be mm -hmm. giant because mm -hmm. there's so much more neurons or the lips are going to be giant. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, our, our reproductive organs are much more well represented in terms of neural representations. Um, and so, you know, like the tops of your feet, barely any representation. So it's kind of a, it's got this homuncular organization. Um, and it's like, like I said, it's like a little man. Now that makes sense, right? Because you want a body map that kind of maps, uh, uh, tracks with what your body looks like. When we talk about cognitive control, which is essentially what you're asking, the conductor, the, the who is, who is um, coordinating all these things. Uh, we can't find the little man in the brain that does that because it's false. It's a it's a it's the wrong headed notion. Um, as we, as we as far as we know, um, it is entirely emergent to have what is control come about through um, the convergence of what happened in the last moment and all these other factors, what the environmental input is, et cetera. So, um, no, we cannot find a controller in some sense. But what we do find is that there are brain networks that seem to be driving how the other parts of the brain function. And that's where this brain system that I happen to study in my lab, attention, has a role to play. In some sense, I talk about attention as the brain's boss mm -hmm. because attentional networks really can recalibrate 
perception, thought, memory, even mm-hmm. what we feel uh, in our bodies are really biased based on where attention flows. Now, what about intention? Does that have a role to play? Yeah. I mean, I would say intention and attention are very much related to it, related to each other. I mean, what do you mean when you say the word intention? Well, all this gets down to, you know, we uh, let's let's give it a kind of contemporary Buddhist uh, way of talking about it. We're kind of like mucking our way through this life. Uh, it, Lord, that's some sorrow, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of repeat signs all over the place. There's a lot of unconscious behaviors. I mean, everybody knows this from every discipline you, you come to. So the question is, is, is there anything substantial, independently existent at the core of it? And that's more than a metaphysical question. Like people who ask that question metaphysically, of course, they could sit there and debate in, in uh, you know, monasteries for 50 years. But what if you just looked at it uh, experientially, is there a core? And and this is, you know, we would say there's, um, is there a permanent aspect to it? Is it, um, is there an independently existent aspect to it? Does it exist independently as opposed to interdependently? And is there any kind of um, substantial identity that, uh, that you could point to? Now, to me, that this is just basic, um, you know, kind of um, Buddhist logic. But it seems like if you follow that through, most thoughtful people would come up with the, with the conclusion, even if they addressed it to their own existence. No, there is no permanence to my existence, however I frame it, you know, unless they get tricky with you and try to create some kind of etheric uh, uh, permanence. And then two is, is, is there any kind of independent notion here? Does, does Where do I stop? Where does the rest of reality continue and so forth? And the third one, is there uh, a... Uh, substance to to some kind of individual existence can you substantiate something there and so when you go no 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 and when you have the, the experience of no 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 this is what you know this is what's called this guy manjushi the, the the heart attack sutra i don't know if you ever heard that it's called the heart sutra but it's called heart, the heart sutra. attack sutra. <laughs> but the, because the arhats these kind of very realized independent practitioners when i got nothing and everything in the sutra says you got nothing you have no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. Is there, in science, can we find something that contradicts that? And, and, and anyways, I'm really going to the root of your cultural history here. Anatta, Anatman. No self, no, no substance. Well, I would say that is more of what brain science is suggesting, is that the notion a self is an ever-evolving, ever-changing set of brain activation um, that can kind of fall into place in a certain way and is or in the and the brain is organized to have us experience the sense of self but when you actually look at it at, at the kind of more fundamental level level falls apart like there's nothing there um, and these notions of um, I can't speak to emptiness but for interconnection at, or interdependence and and impermanence that is the nature of the brain it is entirely interdependent and impermanent entirely um and that is its nature so um no there's nothing that we can point to with solidity in that in that sense and all we have is scientists going back to your comment regarding what is science and meditation right. and buddhism even right perfect connect. marriage as you said perfect um, marriage. yeah 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 in some yeah. sense that is what we're coming to 
as brain science has evolved, we went from thinking, first of all, we went from thinking, oh, the brain, not important. A heart uh, is really the, you know, even going back to like Plato and, mm-hmm. um, but no, okay, the brain is important. All right. So then how does the brain organize? Okay. There's these chunks. There's the chunk of the brain that does vision and the chunk of the brain that does memory and a chunk of the brain that does thinking. Now we're at the point where it's like, no, <laughs> they're not chunks and they don't happen independently. Um, they are networks, like I was saying, and those networks can traverse the entirety of the brain. So, okay, it's not chunks, it's it's networks, fine. Can these networks exist independently? No, it's an entire orchestration of the entirety of the brain. You come to the point where you're like, every thought you have, everything that you experience in your conscious experience is a calibration of the entirety of the what the brain is doing. And, you so know, some of these- um, It's holographic in a sense. Isn't that similar to a holographic premise mm-hmm. that, that one element of the hologram contains the seed of the entire thing? Yeah, right. Uh, or as Alan Watts would say, you know, you you're not just the wave in the ocean; you're the entirety of the ocean. It's like that kind of a notion mm-hmm. that everything is the culmination of of what's going on uh, to the point at which we now can talk about sort of uh, um, global field potentials when we talk about electrical activity in the brain, and they're telling us something about the nature of these of mm-hmm. these uh, dynamics. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that that is where we're, as we become more sophisticated and the technology improves with regard to how we're going to capture the brain, we're coming closer and closer to understanding it's constantly shifting, it's dynamic nature, and it's constantly interconnected nature. So, well, and, and wouldn't you have to, I'm sure you've had these kind of conversations, and if, if any of it is too uh, repeated, we can take a step out into the, the further reaches of the conversation. But I think most people would want to know, would you say brain and mind is the same or two different things? Mm. That's comes what up. Do you be, think? Uh, well, that what comes about up you? What, what would you say? I would say good question, first of all, and you know, go to the go to the back of the class. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll see you. I gotta get going. Yeah, now. Good, no, good, just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like um, I guess this is something I toy with is the essential nature, material or spiritual. And you know, of course, in our way of looking at it, it's interdependent even at that level. So you couldn't say it's either one or the other. But I, I think in 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 the Buddhist tradition, without a doubt, we would say the mind is um uh, you know, a more comprehensive field than the than the brain organ. Yeah, right. Okay, so um, I would say, good question. And then before I run to the back of the room, I'll say, <laughs> we don't know. But here's what we know. What we know is that we have tools to look at the way the brain functions. We're getting right. better and better and more sophisticated at that. We're hopefully going to learn more and more about the way the brain operates just at this kind of more um, concrete level. Mm-hmm. Now, what is mind, right? So in some sense, I would say our mind and brain equivalent, even at that, even at the level of sort of uh, kind of, kind of um, ordinary reality, you'd say, well, no, I mean, mind may not just be what the brain does. It may be about the brain connected to the body, or maybe mm-hmm. it's about the brain connected to the body cre- connected to the environment, or maybe it's the brain connected to the body and the environment and other people. So you start already expanding the notion of what brain is what mind is in that way. But even if you go at that level, it's still stuff that you can see and feel and kind of measure. Um, is there something outside of the realm of what is measurable? I mean, in some sense, is is mind something that is, um, let's put it this way, is the brain a factory for consciousness? Does it create it? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and even as it, it, even as mind proliferates in the way I described, it would still be that the brain is generating this capacity mm-hmm. for mind to exist, or is the brain an antenna for the mind? Mm-hmm. And it happens to be the receiver of something that is beyond the realm of something we can measure, but somehow it gets instantiated, and then we're looking at it at that uh, at that level. So I don't know the answer, but I know that um, I know that. In my lifetime, I'm probably going to, we as a field are probably going to get just better and better at looking at the brain and the way it functions in the, with the tools we have. Mm. And if the tools allow us to check out these other questions, we will. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, un, it's undoubtable in my mind that they will because mind, one of the things about mind, as far as I'm concerned, is mind uh, somehow is engaged in the process of, of tracking itself to its source. It's just part of the ecosystem, like, you know, you call it spirituality, call it whatever you want, um, curiosity, just trying to, you know, people trying to find their source. So there's a lot of ways of talking about it, but it, at least from the way that I've been, you know, uh, trained, it's intriguing that in the, um, um, well, this is very generic, but in the Eastern culture, they take it for granted that the mind transcends the brain. Like if you talk to anybody, you know, even somebody on the street won't, won't have a, a question about it. And in the West, they take the exact opposite thing for granted uh, as a foundation. So that in itself is kind of uh, amusing, uh, ironic, or what, what, what have you. But so we could just look at what some of the things the mind is said to be, not what the brain. You know, I couldn't tell. I couldn't. I wouldn't even dare to talk about the brain with you in the room. That's for sure. But the mind um, is said to be like space. That's something that's often said. In other words, it is not measurable. It is not uh, a sense of here or there. It's not locatable. It has no particular form aspect to it. This dharmakaya, you know, it's just this sort of a, a field effect of some kind. So, um, and it has luminosity and cognition built into it as part of its nature. As a part of its, so you would say, if you started talking this way about it, that it's permanent, which is gets everybody all messed up when you teach Buddhism for 30 years. And then at the end, you go to the advanced class and they say, Vajra nature is permanent. You know, it's just something that is self-exists uh, in, in, in a non-temporal way. So you're going to have to uh, track this to its source because that's what that, isn't it true that you, that's the mission you're on, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we want to know what the truth is. What's the truth? Yeah. The nature of what is the, na- what are the nature? What is the nature of this? Right, this meaning everything that is—that's sort of the broadest mission of, of science. And I would say that right now, to get insight into uh, the luminous um, thinking capacities, you know, we're better on thinking than the luminous. Haven't quite figured out how to capture that. Uh, the the formless spaciousness, no idea how to capture that. But we, the reason that a lot of those um, uh, characterizations of mind come up is. Well, first of all, thinking it through, it's, it's sort of from the from the experiment you do in your own mind. When you think about the nature of, of mind, you could come to that. And I think that's what a lot of contemplatives, uh, especially from the Buddhist tradition, have come to. The, this notion of, what, as you just described, uh, brain or mind. But the other thing is some of the unusual, inexplicable features that can occur with some particular individuals require people to say, it can't work the way that we think it does in the conventional reality. There's got to be some other way. So for example, non-local cognition mm. or, um, you know, that's, let's just stick to non-local cognition as a good example. And I always think about um, 
uh, you know, you were mentioning uh, Krishna Das, just that one wonderful documentary with him talking about Karoli Baba and Ram Das, and like now all of a sudden you're like, what the heck is going on there? Mm-hmm. And and you know, and it, if you, I, mean, I was thinking Ram Das himself was a psychologist. I mean, he would mm-hmm. he, he his mind was oriented in the most principled way regarding these features. And I never got a chance to to ever meet him or, or talk to him about it, but it certainly occurs to me that that perplexing feeling of like, what the heck? Our models are got to be wrong if this kind of thing is happening, especially if you uh, experience it yourself. And to that, I'd say, if we could repeat those kinds of episodes over and over again, we might be able to get a handle on the true the truer nature of how things work. But those have not been accessible to science. So that's where the puzzle is. It's like, how are we going to figure this out if we can't on demand, have people have non-local cognition to the right. point where we can conduct rigorous experiments and write about them to our, with our fellow scientists. You want to get the Mahasiddhas into the laboratory. Yeah. That's, that would, that's an inter- and you've had close to it, you know, with people like Mingjur Rinpoche and, you know, very accomplished meditators. But, you know, there are experiences that people, ordinary people describe around such beings, such as bilocation, time-stopping, uh, you know, extraordinarily extraordinary synchronicity, which is called tendril in Tibetan. You know, just things lining up in in ways that ordinarily they they wouldn't. Um, you know, uh, synchronous firings, and then there's people who get attached to that outcome, which you're not supposed to, by the way. Uh, going, how can we make how can we kindle that and make that fire blaze? But the the the, the it seems like the real um. Uh, ecosystem that supports those kind of extraordinary activities is extraordinary is ordinary reality. That's mm, the core yeah. thing about. It. In other words, just the person's at ease and resting and not really particularly trying to make anything happen in, in one way or another. Mm. That's when the extraordinary yeah. stuff happens. Hmm. That's interesting. I would say um, here's what I would say. In, in term, this is just my personal take on the whole thing, and this is it's been interesting being in this very new field called contemplative neuroscience, which is mm. essentially we're doing our best to connect uh, contemplative wisdom traditions with brain science, right? And and pursue the like I said, this marriage between between contemplative thought and um, the cutting edge of brain science. Um, what is where does contemplative practice and contemplative um, thinking fit in? Is it a really cool set of hypotheses that we should test out, or is it the truth? And we got to figure out how do we make the science match that. And for me, it's always been the former. It's always been like this is such a an incredibly cool way that people for thousands of years have figured out the nature of things, and. In my view, since I've stepped into this role of of wanting to study that, it's looking more and more like that wisdom truly does align with what we're finding out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I certainly don't see my job as confirming anything. Mm. Um, And and I would say that the confirming aspect would be counter to the actual philosophical orientation of the entire endeavor. It's like, in some sense, it's not the truth and we're trying to match it, but we're in this ongoing exploration of the nature of things. Um, so we don't know. But I did want to kind of mention that point that these are amazing um, ideas. And my the most fun I have is these kind of conversations where I talk to people like Buddhist teachers, just like we are now, or Buddhist scholars. 
and we start looking at the matchup. Like if a, if an intro to neuroscience textbook had been written from the vantage point of Buddhist scholarly thought, the chapters would be quite different than the way that they're organized in conventional neuroscience textbooks. And mm. what do we learn by kind of taking that orientation toward uh, the way that we do this science? You know, at the deepest level, that's something I'm very excited about. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, there is a slight twist in everything. Everything has a slight twist. And, you know, uh, I'm a, a follower of, of Manjushri here. I mean, I, I, I don't mean that to sound um, mysterious in any way, but I like to pick things apart. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you just, okay, let's wait a minute. When people start going, I go like, whoa, what about this? What about that? Mm -hmm. And um, so, so the idea of um, trying to get at a, a kind of spirit of inquiry in which nothing is taken for granted, which I believe is the definition of the scientific method. Would you say that's true? I mean, you have to have a hypothesis you're going to test against, but oh, okay. There's not nothing is taken for granted, but you do have a view coming in that you're going to test out, and that's how we make progress. It's like, but you're, you're going to abandon bias, though, along the way, right? Well, yes, that's the that's the spirit of it, but you're and you're only going to say my idea was not supported. You can't say my idea was supported ever. It's just like <laughs> I had an idea and the hypothesis was not supported. So I still don't know, but at least this thing I can say is probably not the likely. Is, is that so? Reality. That's I never heard that yeah. before. You're supposed oh, to dis yeah. disprove, only disprove. Yeah. Yeah. You can't prove something? No. In fact, I really chastise students when they start saying we prove this or that. No, we didn't prove anything. Wow. So it's 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 very heart sutra like. It's it's negation is the is the uh, winning hand. When yeah. you disprove is the winning hand. Uh, I have to pause for a minute and think about that. I never heard that before. Negation is the winning hand in scientific exploration. So let's say you wanted to prove that, you know, if you take water and air, a water bubble will rise to the top, right? Okay. Because it's lighter than air. Can't you prove that? I mean, okay, so let's let's put it this way. Um, I'm not a physicist. So a lot, and, and by the way, physics is one of the only enterprises in which laws exist which is the closest to, we really think it happens this way. Uh -huh, okay. Psychologists don't have laws. I mean, they right. maybe have a couple. Same with neuroscientists. We don't really think about having laws. Um, but there are reliable ways that we can see things repeatedly occur. And that is the best working framework we've got. But when we pursue science, when we pursue experiments, it's always, this is our working model of how this thing may play out. And if I'm not negated, then I'm still going to hold that view. Mm -hmm. um, that that working mo model is still proliferating. So, ah, for example, my lab. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm not saying I proved it, but I'm saying it still holds. The hypothesis was not, uh, cannot be dismissed. Because you are not data, able to disprove it. Yeah. You are not able yeah. to so disprove it. So it's still regarding this kind of negation aspect is still very important. Um. But that's not what's going to drive. What happens next isn't, oh, and now I have, I figured it all out. Here's the law of how this right. works. It's right. more like this hypothesis still holds. And that's what we, that's how uh, we battle out what the way things work is, is that we have uh, refining our hypotheses. And then somebody comes along and pokes a hole in it and you kind of got to go this way. And then 
And then maybe somebody pokes a hole that way and you got to kind of move it around. And that's what leads to our clearer and clearer understanding of how things work. That's very helpful. You, if you fail to disprove something, it may be intact for the moment. Yeah. That perspective might remain intact. And that's intact. all you can do is say that's it's the best intact you can for do. the moment. That's the <laughs> best you can do. So even in this, you know, this book that I, that I just wrote, spent really a long time kind of trying to, trying to distill my understanding of these things. I have to still hold the humility that in the next five to 10 years, there could be a whole new understanding of things that I can't mm. capture now because I don't know what that is. Um, but that we are, we are moving somewhere. We are getting somewhere. There is traction that is mm. propelling us to deepen and broaden our understanding of things. Where are we going? I've, that's, I've been trying to like figure out where we're going. Uh, it's, um, it feels like a little bit screwy at times, doesn't it, where we're going? Well, so I would say, you know, my personal take on this, this is, you know, in some sense, I've been representing like all science and all scientists ever, right. which sure. I'm not in any position. To, okay. I'm, I'll take it. I got that moment. I'm going to take it. Okay. But what I'll tell you is in my own life, my, my experience was that, you know, my threshold was like, we know enough about certain things. So for example, we know that attention is a very powerful brain system. It can recalibrate the way the rest of the brain works. We know that attention is though it's powerful, vulnerable to certain things mm. uh, like passion, stress, passion, aggression, stress. And ignorance. About well, those that's three. right. Or, or, or as we put it in psychology, <laughs> yeah. psychological terms, stress, threat, and poor mood. Oh, <laughs> and and we've seen that repeatedly. The, Wait, the stress, threat, and poor mood. Stress, threat, and poor mood. Okay. I mean, it's not going to be a direct mapping, but I think yeah, there's okay. going to triangulate around the same factors that right, lead right, to okay. a lot of these destructive qualities of mind. And when those arise, there are is a compromise in our ability to control the spontaneous nature of the mind in a more rigorous and stable manner. And when that occurs, uh, we function more poorly. We make mistakes. We feel bad. Uh, we don't get along with people. You know, essentially, our ability to think. Feel and connect becomes compromised when attention starts falling apart. So I, I was in a position, kind of going back to your question regarding where are we going, where I felt like we know this, we know a lot about this. Sure, people can dig in deeper, let them. We know this, that things can fall apart. We can dig in deeper, deeper into exactly how it is that things fall apart. But that wasn't satisfying to me as a researcher. I was like, okay, if we know both those things, let's get on it, people. Let's get some, some answers to help. Let's protect against these vulnerabilities of mind by training the mind mm. and in very practical terms with people like firefighters and medical professionals. It was, it was like, if attention is extremely powerful and it gets messed up, how can I train it so that people don't mess up as often lives are saved. There's a less proliferation of suffering in the world. So where are we going really depends on the scientists that you ask. Some may still want to pursue and many are still pursuing the basic nature of attention. Others are pursuing the vulnerabilities of attention and whatever else they, mm -hmm. they study. I wanted to move toward how can we best strengthen and protect this brain resource? How, what is the best way that we can offer training to people to make their attention stronger? That's sort of low cost, low tech, highly portable. And through the variety of things that I studied in my lab, the thing I came to which sh shocked the heck out of me was mindfulness meditation. Okay. So wow. that's where I'm headed, which is to understand not just, um, what mindfulness is, what meditation is, how it changes the brain, which is all 
fascinating areas, but how can we apply this in the most practical, um, a really scalable manner so that more and more people can benefit? Um, because the world's suffering is endless. And if there are ways in which we can train the mind to protect it, let's do that. So to a- answer your question very directly, personally, my, where I'm going with it is better solutions that are informed by the world's wisdom traditions and examined and interrogated with modern neuroscience. Which is going to be an easier sell for a lot of people too. It's very interesting to teach this and you watch some, you say, you know, neuroscience is, you know, reinforcing some of these premises and you look at some people go, okay, I'm, I'll give me a scoop of that. And other people, they could care less about the confirmation. That yeah. You know, and that my intention going in, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know. Are you getting your check every week from uh, the secret Buddhist society where uh, when you end suffering, you get a cut in your bank account. No, we're not. Yeah, no, but I get great checks these. from songs that I've written. <laughs> See, about that. Yeah, yeah. So you want I'm some IP to... there, Amishi, just while we're on the topic. And since this is creativity, <laughs> spirituality, and making a buck, and there's yeah. your IP right behind you there, you want some IP in the in the game, right? Well, you definitely want some IP as long as you hold it with humility and <laughs> understand the impermanent nature of everything. Um, but <laughs> but what I'm just well, all I'm trying to say is um, the cell is real. There are some people that need a certain kind of argument, including me. Mm. I was very much a skeptic mm. when it came to mm. uh, the utility of something called meditation, uh, given my own spiritual background, cultural background, where I grew up with this stuff, right? So it's like yeah. meditation, like that's that thing my parents and grandparents do. That's not for me. I'm a hard-nosed Western scientist. But what ended up happening is that through all the different things we studied in the lab, nothing could really hold up uh, to the multiple kinds of tests we put it to. You know, if we give them... Um, you know, brain training games, or we gave them a, devices that were mood and sound, you know, s- s- sound and kind of um, visual stimulation, or we gave them mood inductions. All these things had temporary benefits for attention, but nothing enduring and nothing generalizable. And so my movement toward wanting to study and bring mindfulness to the work in my lab was because it was a solution that seemed to hold up. So I'm just, I'm just saying that um, uh, the cell is not for the purposes of selling something, but it's really about what works, what is scientifically um, supported to work. Is there a a neuroscientific basis for empathy? Does the brain have empathy circuits, circuitry built into it? Yeah. Is that mirror neurons? Is that what those are? I mean, that's a debate and that's not really my area, but there are definitely people that are studying both the sort of cognitive and emotional aspects of empathy and, and, looking at that. Same thing with compassion. And really, what's the difference between empathy and compassion? I mean, these are, this is what this field of contemplative neuroscience is doing. It's taking the core practices and the core principles of, of Buddhist thought and other contemplative traditions, and then using, sort of bringing together these two worlds of, of uh, a, a contemplative framework and then a Western neuroscientific framework and seeing where are the matchups, where are the mismatches. And um, what I love is when there's like, when there's um, tension between the two, then then we're getting down to something juicy. Um, like you know, oh, it seems like it's this way versus that way. Let's let's look at it a little bit more uh, more rigorously. Like you know, for example, in the concept of compassion, it's like there's an aspect of action, right? It's not just um, uh, an appreciation for the suffering of others, but it's it's really a, a, a resonance with the suffering of others, with the intention to act on behalf of alleviating it. 
Like if we if we square what con- compassion is with an action orientation, and then you teach people compassion practices, and then you look at the brain and say, what brain networks are activated? Mm. And it's like, th- we get it. Okay, there's emotional networks activated, but then there's this weird like action-oriented system. Why is that activated? Oh, let's lo- go look back and see what these practices are intending to do. Activate, motivate, really an engagement of something beyond just this quivering of the heart, but action aligned with doing it. So I think it's it's really a, a rich and fun area, but we're just at the beginning. I mean, this field has only been around for not even 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think these kind of conversations, by the way, and we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg, but the deeper we go where there we can start debating, like, this is what we know from this framework. This is what we think from this framework. Um, that's where amazing collaborations can start happening. <clears throat> You know, when you sense yourself and when you sense the world, there's a non-cognitive dimension to that, a non-linear dimension to it, a non-conceptual dimension to it. Do we talk yeah. about something like that? Or is there a way to even approach having that, that conversation? Oh, for sure. Is there a word for it? Um, it's not exactly the well, meta thing. Than- other than mindfulness. Well, here's here's what I'd like to, and, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but yeah. I have a list of about 10 things that I would love to, like, just, you know, have just a little bit of sake. And, and, yeah. No, no, sake. And, oh. just, <laughs> and just go one one step further into, into the uh, thing. But, of course, I'm going to tend to pull this into a familiar area, which is, you know, mindfulness is a big deal in the West, but mindfulness is a foundational idea in, in the Buddhist practice. It's very basic, actually. And even when what what the characteristic Western people call mindfulness is really a, a hybrid of two practices, which is uh, shamatha and vipassana. And, and the shamatha is the focusing element, you know, the stabilizing element. So people will practice shamatha very, very diligently to achieve a very high degree of focus. But that is not considered, you know, to be anything other than a basis for exploring what actually arises in that in that stable space now, which is roughly called vipassana. And those are preparatory because you start to have insight into how things are and how they're not. And then, interestingly, the next dimension up is somehow interpersonal domain appears as uh, the Mahayana Buddhist teachings, and all the language shifts over to um, emptiness and compassion, and the the fact that the individual self can actually never be happy it's impossible and uh, into if, if you cling to that individuation in some way it's the antithesis of any kind of real joy or or um uh, you know fruition so how do you and and some of those things are feelings that i would be hard to describe if you fall in love with somebody if you see a child it's there must be things firing in the brain though that are comparable to those, right? So there must be a drug you could give somebody to make them more empathetic. Then no, why not? They're complex processes. It's like can you give somebody a drug or put them on some regime that can make them more meta aware? I don't think that <laughs> there are people. Who, very... our, friend, our friend would argue that there are drugs like that. Yeah, I guess our friend would argue that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that we're talking about very specific processes. But mm-hmm. let me just kind of back up. Like you're mm-hmm. talking about stuff that's comfortable from your terrain. I want to do the same from my terrain. Okay, so sure. even the notion of shamatha and vipassana actually fit very nicely with two major brain systems of attention. 
Mm. where Shamatha really is regarding, essentially you could think of it, let's now use kind of more physics or data terms, high signal to noise ratio. There's something that is relevant and Mm. that should be the primary um, salient thing in your mind and everything else is noise. That's what that one-pointedness is. And the brain system, there are two brain systems that have to do with that. Both work together to have this concentrative attention. Uh, and we can track those and we can train for those. And a lot of uh, the kind of work we do when we look at people that are practicing the suite of mindfulness practices that are kind of available in uh, health clinics, for example, you see that that brain networks having to do with high signal to noise ratio, high selection mm-hmm. of relevant information are present. And then there's a brain system uh, 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 you know, that is tied to the opposite, dialing down this high signal to noise ratio to the point where really there is no, there's nothing privileged. Everything is potentially relevant. And what you're actually privileging in some sense is what is occurring in this moment. You're privileging time. What is happening right now? So you're taking a broad receptive stance toward the free flow of conscious experiences. You know, what pops in, what pops out without grasping onto anything, without pursuing anything. Which is Vipassana which is what the Vipassana practices do. And yes, together is what we'd say mindfulness is cultivating. Um, And there is a brain system. Sometimes people call it, you know, the saliency network that is just doing that. It's sort of monitoring at this broad level. What is, what is salient right now? You know, it's kind of in this kind of watching mode, taking an observational stance moment by moment of what's occurring without any predispositional biases toward what should be arising or what you're looking for. So already when we think about um, brain networks, especially as it relates to my topic, my field of attention, you see a lot of alignment between what, how to cultivate these practices and and how, and then that's the test. Okay, if you have shamatha and vipassana practices that are supposed to one, help you get more single pointed and, and, and on the other hand, get you broad receptive to the ever evolving, changing nature of conscious experience. Well, let's train people up on that. And then let's see what happens to these brain networks that have been identified that seem to do both of those things. Mm. And by the way, the there's a third aspect to this, which is it's not just about um, single-pointedness with regard to the content you want to hold in your mind or broadly receptive stance regarding the experiences you might have tied to the external environment. You're doing all of this with regard to the internal environment itself. And you will start getting in touch with the spontaneous nature of the mind. And how it can grip you when spontaneity ends up having a thought that ends up kind of guiding you and pulling you away, um, you're going to become destabilized in some sense. So um, I just wanted to mention that even with those sort of broad terms, as you said, it's sort of foundational. These are so foundational. It's like you're not even, you know, you're like baby steps, the entryway. I remember when I gave my last presentation to the Dalai Lama and we're talking about all this, he said, that's like kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, maybe Western neuroscience is kindergarten. That's fine with me. That's part somewhere. We're in school though. So that's a good thing. <laughs> did you ask him to elaborate? Yeah, he, he did. I didn't even have to ask him. But his, <laughs> essentially what, um, that's a whole other conversation regarding, oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, his, un- his thoughts regarding our understanding of the nature of mind. And, you know, of course my, my, kind of philosophical or framework around this can get as deep and elaborate and, uh, you know, not, not kindergarten, but what I'm looking to is what is the current state of the field of neuroscience 
how what is it saying regarding these concepts? And there isn't a lot kind of pursuit going on with regard to that. So in some sense, we are just at the beginning stages because we don't even know the questions to ask yet. We're just starting to even probe those. You know, I, I did hear him say once at the Beacon Theater in New York, he used to come before all this, whatever this is, and give every year and give a, a series of talks. And there would be the public talk, which was just nice and compassion and everybody love each other. And then he would give the Dharma talks. You see the di- different aspects of them because he's really um, also the holder of a very scholarly tradition. Um, and somebody raised their hand and said, you know, we're studying a text that's a thousand years old here. Hasn't anything changed, uh, you know, in human beings in all that time? He said, but basically not much. However, he did say this. He said, with modern science, he said, there seem to be certain possible discoveries within, let's say, the next 150 years that might be game changers. Did you have heard him say something like that? Yeah, and he went on to say, and if what is found contradicts our right, sure. understanding, we will accommodate adapt. it. Sure. We will yeah. adapt. And I love that. I mean, to me, that's like the, I mean, you know, just the most uh, poignant example of a truly scientific mind. Yeah, great, wonderful. Well, I know you have another uh, another appointment. And myself, on behalf of everybody who's listening, we're starting to grieve early here that you're going to leave us so precipitously just when the conversation was beginning to ripen and blossom. <laughs> However, having said that, could you tell us a little bit about your book so that we can, you know, I, I've been I've been doing the audiobook version of it. And uh, I think after people are, are hearing uh, your perspective, which is so grounded and so practical, um, could you could you just tell us a little bit about the book and, and so we could steer people towards it? Do you mind doing that? Yeah, absolutely. What were you going for so, there? Yeah, right. So um, in some sense, it, Peak Mind, which is the name of the book, is my um, journey, almost in some sense, cataloging some of the autobiographical aspects of my own life, but really the scientific journey of how mindfulness entered my lab and the kind of research findings that um, we are discovering working with a variety of populations uh, for whom this mindfulness-based approach may not be something they want um, or thought was relevant, but based on the kind of findings that we have, that attention in particular, which is sort of the core aspect of this, is powerful and vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, relates to their life experience. So, you know, when when you're and the kinds of groups I'm talking about are people like first responders, medical and nursing professionals, wow. elite athletes, military service members, military spouses, um, and guitar and players. List- guitar players, not yet, but next cohort, I'm coming to you. Um, And and what we find is that uh, there are beneficial ways with a very practical orientation of what's the minimum amount of time you should spend daily Mm. to protect your mind from high stress consequences. Um, We were finding study after study that gave us a prescription that I thought was now finally time to offer to people that aren't participants in my lab. So the book is essentially a, a description of the work we've done and the reasons behind it, and then the scientific findings uh, that we found that also culminates in the prescription that we've offered many participants. So for those of, uh, of us that have been practitioners for a long time, from the variety of perspectives that we take, hopefully it's like a fresh take on something you know quite well, and you'll be able to see how I've done my best 
um, to connect the dots with these deeper principles that come from a whole other tradition. Um, but for people that have never thought about mindfulness, it'll also be an interesting, I hope, uh, journey into why it's worth consideration and practice. Yeah. Well, that is awesomely clear, you know, like a still lake and you can see the <laughs> reflection in it. Uh, lucid, Vajra-like, pristine, and uh, so helpful. So thank you so much. It's um, it's very inspiring to talk to you. And I really do feel like uh, we've just scratched the surface of, of something that um, I hope we can continue in the future. So thank you, Dr. Ja, and come back soon, okay? Oh, I'd love to. And I agree. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for, for the opportunity. 